In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, and uh, we'll go over to our hymn of the month. So um, we we skipped it last week because of our printer problems and not having any sheets. But um, we did start to learn it the week before. And this is a new hymn to the congregation. So so you might not have heard it before, um, except for two weeks ago. But it's a great hymn. I, I walk in danger all the way. And uh, it goes something like, um, if that sounds kind of familiar, um, what we'll do is la- uh, last time we sang it, we sang one, three, and five. So we'll do uh, two, four, and six this time. Two, four, and six. The even, even stanzas. Okay. I pass through trials all the way. With sin and hills contending, in patience I must bear each day the cross of God's own sending when in adversity. I know not where to flee. When storms of woe may soul dismay, I pass through trials all the way. I walk with angels all the way. They shield me and befriend me. All Satan's power is held at bay when heavenly hosts attend me they are my sure defense all fear and sorrow hence unarmed by foes do what they may I walk with angels all the way. My walk is heavenward all the way. Await my soul the morrow when God's good healing shall allay all suffering sin and sorrow then worldly pomp be gone to heaven i now press on for all the world i would not say my walk is heavenward all the way supposed to be way, not wah, by the way. You all figured out, but... Um, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll move on. We'll talk about the hymn in a minute. All right, let's uh, go down to the catechism memory work. Um, what? The, and this is actually the same memory work that was in here last week, but we were off schedule somehow, so this is correct now, but we'll, we'll just do it again. It's fine. Well, what does such baptizing with water indicate? It indicates that the old Adam in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and evil desires, and that a new man should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. 
Where is this written? St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Romans 6, 4. All right, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. And Luther's morning prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, Kids can go off to Sunday school. So as far as the hymn of the month goes, um, you're getting better and better at it. You're learning it, right? That's, that's good. So it, it sounds, last last time we did it, the, the first stanza was a little rough. We all were learning it, right? And then the second stanza was a little bit better, and the third stanza was even a little bit better. And this time, the the first stanza we sang was better than last week when we sang it, and then each stanza got better and better. So every, Yeah, everyone got more confident. It's So it sounded good by the end. Um, not that it didn't sound good to begin with, but it sounded better by the end. So, um, yeah, and, and uh, maybe next time we'll go a little bit faster, right? Get the really get the tune down. I don't know why this is, by the way, but whenever um, you know this doesn't happen that often, but but once in a while, someone not really in the church will uh, normally someone outside of the church will tell me uh, they they find out we do traditional worship or you know sing hymns. And they're a proponent of contemporary worship. And one of the things that they always say, um, which, by the way, the, 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 battle, the battle between contemporary and traditional worship has been over since, like, the 2000s. I mean, every church does what the churches do now. They either do contemporary or they do traditional or they do some kind of blended, right? Yeah. Churches do what they do. But it was a big... It was a big battle back in the 90s and 2000s, but it's long over now. But for some reason, some people still think that it's going on, right? They, and they still want to fight about it. And I'm like, why are we fighting? Like, can't we just, uh, you know, like be done with that by now? Like, we fought about it for 20 years. Can we be done with it? Anyway, um, that's called the worship wars. Sometimes people call it the worship wars of the 90s and 2000s. Yeah, right. I mean, everyone just goes to whatever they want to, right? And... Uh, I think the the main thing about the worship wars was that the main argument for contemporary worship was that it was going to bring in the young people, and it didn't, right? Every I, I, This isn't 100%, I guess, but if you look at your average LCMS church that has both a traditional and a contemporary service, all the young families, or like 90% of the young families go to the traditional service. It, it just didn't, it didn't bring in young people. So <laughs> anyway... Um, but that's that's beside the point. Um, my point is, sometimes when people talk to me about contemporary music, which happens once in a while, they always tell me that, um, well, contemporary music is fast and hymns are slow. I, I always, I always kind of ask this question. I'm like, well, what's the difference between a hymn and a song? Because they're like, we sing songs, you sing hymns. I'm like, what's, <laughs> what's the difference? And um, they always say hymns are slow. That's just not true. No. Okay, like you can ask Donna. Hymns have different tempos. Like you play hymns at different tempos, and you can sing this slower. You can sing it fast. Like it has nothing to. Anyway, tempo is in all of music. 
tempo is tempo, right? Like, it is what it is. And there are really slow contemporary songs. Too. Anyway, I just I always thought that was funny. I don't know why I brought that up. Oh, I said next time we can sing slow. I think we sang it a little bit slow today so we can get the tune, but we can speed it up next Sunday. Anyway, I always think that's hilarious. Well, hymns are slow and sad. No, they're not. Like when, a lot of happy hymns. I don't know. I think there are. Um, all right. Enough of that. Um, oh, I was going to say something theological about the hymn. Um, so, in, uh, oh, this is what I wanted to talk about. In stanza four, um, it's a stanza about angels, which is very nice because I don't think we probably talk about angels as much as we should. I mean, angels are huge in the Bible, um, especially in. Well, really in the Old and New Testament, right? Um, angels are appearing all the time in the Old Testament at important events, right? So an angel appears to Abraham to announce to Abraham about the birth of Isaac. Um, and then in the New Testament, right, an angel is the one that comes to Mary and Joseph, right, to announce the birth of Jesus. And when Jesus is born, the angels are there. And um, the angels are all over the place. But the biblical purpose of angels is to guard and protect and fight, right? They're warriors. So they shield me and befriend me. All Satan's power is held at bay when heavenly hosts. So host is a word for armies. When the heavenly armies attend me, they are my sure defense. All fear and sorrow. Hence, unharmed by foes, do what they may. I walk with angels all the way. And... Uh, this um, I think this September uh, next month I, I think we're gonna um, probably skip one of the Trinity Sundays and do Saint Michael and all angels um, because that's in September and uh, it's called a uh, Michaelmas in the kind of ancient church year word is the the feast of Saint Michael and all angels Michaelmas so uh, we'll probably do that in September, I think, um, and we'll have a Sunday kind of focused on what are angels. So I think that should be fun. But, yeah, I wanted to point that out, that this hymn has this stanza all about the angels. And we, we came across this uh, last on Wednesday night as well in the word uh, Sabaoth, right? So there's two words that sound kind of similar in Latin and the, that show up in the liturgy. There's Sabbath. Right, the uh, the day of rest, and then there's Sabaoth, which is armies or hosts. Right, that's the old word for armies or host. And um, so when we say the Lord in in the um, liturgy in the Sanctus, whenever we say Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty, uh, the Lord of Sabaoth, that's the Lord of armies or the Lord of angels, right? Because God is the He's the general of the army of angels, right, if you want to think of it that way. All right. Um, he's the commander-in-chief. Yeah. Uh, who in this room has not had a car accident and think of angels have protected me? Yeah. You know, you know after the airbag goes off, you begin to wonder, yeah, I'm still alive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's been... Many instances like that that I can think of in my life, not just car accidents, but all sorts of things when you think about how like fragile life, life is. is yeah. yeah, right. Like, uh, and when I had a when I had appendicitis this like couple, you know a month ago now, um, like if it was like you know 1682, I probably would have just died. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but the uh, the angels, I mean that part of that's a statement about you know God working in in the world and developing medical technology. But part of that's a statement about angels too, right? Um, they were they were protecting me. All right. Uh, oh, the catechism. The catechism memory work we went over last week, so we won't go over it again. That's fine. 
All right, so let's uh, jump back into Isaiah. So last week we started going an overview of the book of Isaiah, and uh, Isaiah, uh, sorry, not Isaiah, Steve, um, was kind enough to make a, a printout of what was on the board when we left last week, but then I erased it for Wednesday night. So he saved he saved us uh, what was on the board for from last week, which gives us a little bit of an overview of what we did last week. So um, first of all, this isn't on the sheet, but as far as kind of a little bit of a general introduction to Isaiah, right? He tells us um, he tells us he's the son of Amos, but other than that, we don't know a lot about him. But Isaiah is the fifth longest book in the Bible. Um, so it's a pretty uh, long book, 66 chapters of, of decent length. Um, and also arguably one of the most popular books of the Bible, right? We talked about this, that a lot of our favorite Old Testament passages come from Isaiah, right? Holy, 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 for un- uh, um, sorry, I was just mixing seven and nine in my head, but uh, you have the um, the Emmanuel prophecy in seven, and then unto you a son is given, uh, and his name will be called the Prince of Peace, so on and so forth. That's nine. Uh, we have uh, 40, comfort, comfort ye my people. We have 53, the the lamb um, led to the slaughter, stricken, smitten, stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. Um, all of these big passages, and we're going to look at those today. We're going to look at those today. So um, that for that reason, Luther... Luther, I think it was, called it the fifth gospel, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Isaiah, right? So um, pretty important Old Testament book in that sense. Of course, all the Old Testament books are important. Um, Up there on the handout, you see Judah and other nations. That's um, to who he's prophesying. So he lives in Judah, and we know actually um, exactly what time he prophesied, right? Unlike some of the other prophets, he says... Um, it was this year um, at this time that I prophesied. So he prophesied in the king, under the kings Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, right? Um, so we know exactly when he prophesied, and we know part of his prophecy, at least by Isaiah 6, is in Jerusalem, in, at the temple, right? So we'll look at Isaiah 6 today. Um, and then we looked at some of the main themes Excuse me. Some of the main themes in Isaiah, and we really have this dichotomy, right? Of um, what, as Lutherans, we love to talk about as law and gospel, where there's uh, Isaiah will give a prophecy or a exhortation of judgment, right? Of the law, he'll convict the people who he's talking to, and then he'll follow that up with a prophecy of hope, and he kind of does this um, in a as we saw in the outline, where um, it happens on a macro scale in the book, um, but then it happens on a micro scale, like in the structure of the whole book. So part one, chapters one through 39, is mainly about the judgment that's going to come on Judah. And then chapters 40 through 66 is all about the hope that's going to come after the return from captivity. Um, and then on a micro scale throughout the book, he does this within individual chapters, for instance, but then also kind of in the um, minor outline that we talked about as well, um, that uh, 1 through 12 is this uh, kind of introduction and, and the first messianic prophecies. Um, and also, I mean, it introduces the problem of sin right in chapter 1. We talked about that last week. We did look at chapter 1. Um, and then... We get judgments against all the nations uh, in oh, – oh, this, this, this got mixed up a little bit here – in 13 through 35. And then in 36 through 39, um, we see the transition from how Judah dealt with Assyria well but did not deal with Babylon well, um, Hezekiah – with Hezekiah. And then um, in 40 through 48 – 
we find out about deliverance, and then we find out about the, the servant who's going to have to bring that deliverance. That's the Messiah. That's Jesus. And then 56 through 66 um, about God's kingdom. So uh, anyway, that, that catches us back up to where we were. We looked at chapter 1, 10 through 18 last time. And we saw, again, that judgment that they experienced from Isaiah. They said uh, in, uh, in Isaiah 1, he called, does anyone remember what the nations he compared Judah to are? He compared them to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But then, um, and he, he talked about their Pharisaism, right? That he's had enough of their burnt offerings of rams. Um, and but that they were they were doing that on the one hand, but they were also going out and worshiping the the pagans and the or worshiping the false gods with the pagans. And then he uh, in starting in like verse 16, he gives this prophecy of hope that they're going to be able to clean themselves and that they're going to um, that though their sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are like Red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That's verse 18. Okay, so we, we kind of talked about um, chapter 1 starting last week. Okay, so that was our first key passage. Now, that's what we want to do the rest of the day today is uh, look at the rest of some of the key passages here in Isaiah. So if you'll turn with me to Isaiah 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Isaiah 6, 1 through 8. I'm going to read the whole thing. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. So again, notice the uh, time reference there. That this is, And this is going to be Isaiah's call to, prof- to be a prophet. And so we are, we know when he's called, right? And it's kind of interesting, the timeline, right? Because he um, – we don't know if he kind of starts prophesying in Isaiah 1 through 5 um, and, then, and then he receives the official call <laughs> or if he received the call um, it, and, and it seems – this seems more likely to me is that he had – this is – he's kind of uh, reminiscing, right? He had, this had already happened before he starts speaking in chapter one, but then he's recalling, right, what had happened. Um, and he's saying, he starts preaching and he's like, oh yeah, by the way, I was called to, to do this, right? Um, all right. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Oh, and it's great we talked about angels earlier, right? Because we're going to have a lot of angels here. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Or we could say Sabaoth there, or armies. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal which he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I go? Or who, sorry, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And um, I'm actually going to keep reading just a little bit. And he said, Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and shut their eyes, 
lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, I'm just going to read the whole chapter. Until the cities laid, are laid waste and without inhabitant, and the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate, the Lord has removed men far away, and forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming. A terebinth, a terebinth tree, or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. Okay. So um, there's a lot here. I need to try and not spend the whole 25 minutes I have on this chapter, but we'll see. All right, the king, uh, so in the year the king Uzziah died, we saw this, okay. He sees the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. Okay, so um, remember back in, is that recorded in Numbers? Or in Exodus, where Moses asked to see the glory of the Lord, and the Lord doesn't allow him to see him, but only walks behind the mountain and uh, and sees sees his back, um, and that uh, blinds Moses right for a time. Uh, that his glory is so great. Well, the Lord here allows Isaiah to see him. Now, what exactly that means, it's hard to say. But you can kind of get the idea that it's so the Lord is high and lifted up, but just the train of his robe, right? So just the back end of God's robe fills the entire temple, right? That This is um, very similar, actually, I think, to when Jesus is walking through the crowd and a woman who's sick who's been bleeding for, for many years, touches the fringe of Jesus' garment, and Jesus feels the power go out of him, and, and she's healed. Right? That God is so powerful and so high and so mighty that we can't really comprehend his glory or his strength. And so um, it's only just this little fringe of garment right? that Isaiah... Uh, recognizes as filling the whole glory of the temple, right? Filling the temple. And above it stood seraphim, so these angels. Each one had six wings. And so this is uh, one type of angel, right? There are different types of angels that are recorded in the Bible. Seraphim are the most prominent uh, as far as how they're described and um, if you think about armies, right, this seems the ser- seraphim is plural or seraphim in, in Hebrew, it's em. So that's kind of how I always say it. But um, the seraphim, I think, are kind of these angel armies, right? You have this this multitude of, of seraphim. Each one had six wings. Two, they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. Right, so even the angels, yeah, Judy. Do they cover their face so they don't see the glory of God? Yeah, that's exactly what I was about to say. Even the angels have to cover themselves, yeah. right, in the presence of in the presence of God. Um, and uh, out of, out of reverence for Him, and we do know angels, right, um, in the beginning at least had the ability to reject God, right? That's what happened to. To Satan is Satan was an angel who who fell from heaven and his hosts with him. So his uh, some of his fellow angels who he brought as demons. And so. Um, yeah. So the there's different. Like I said, there's different kinds of angels, right? Yeah. And cherubim and seraphim. Um, and uh, the cherubim, of course, famous for the being fashioned of uh, gold on on the Ark of the Covenant as well, right? So you get images of angels, which is kind of interesting. I never really, I never really thought about that. That you know, we have these um, our our friends 
some of the, the Reformed who don't like images in church, right? Who don't, they don't want stained glass, uh, just bare crosses, uh, you know, very, they're, they're very, what we'd call iconoclastic. They don't like church art, basically. Because they say you don't, thou shalt make, shall not make any, unto thee any graven image, right? Um, which I think is a misinterpretation of that, of that passage, but um, it, it just struck me that on the Ark of the Covenant, God commanded there to be church art, <laughs> right? Um, pictures of angels, right? So, uh, anyway. Yeah, right. Yeah, there's pom- pictures of pomegranates everywhere, <laughs> of all things. Why don't we have more pomegranates in our church, brother? That's what God commanded in the Old Testament. So, should get some pomegranate. Have I, uh, yes, I've had pomegranate. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, and when God gives the instructions for the temple, he says to put like uh, pictures of pomegranates up. So it's kind of interesting, yeah. All right, anyway. Um, and one cried to another, right? So the angels are talking to each other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And um, I, so we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday. I'll give a little more detail now because um, we did talked about the song to us on Wednesday. So in the... Service of the sacrament, we sing the Sanctus, right? Holy, holy, holy Lord God. I, I just messed it up. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You know what I'm talking about. Right. Um, so when Luther, not to talk about Luther all the time, but when Luther uh, designed his, like, kind of reformed the Roman Catholic Mass and got rid of all the extra stuff, um, during the Sanctus, what he did was he would – so he wrote a hymn, which we talked about on Wednesday night, right, if you were here on Wednesday night, um, Isaiah Mighty Seers in Days of Old, um, which is a great hymn, and it's a version of the Sanctus. And the way that he would have it done, supposedly – this is what I've read. I don't know if, how true this is – is that um, – the congregation would sing that introductory part where it says, Isaiah, mighty seer in days of old, um, who foretold, uh, and it kind of gives the historical introduction, if you will, to this scene, that what they, there'd be two altar boys and on either side of the chancel, and um, they, they would uh, alternate these two Verses, right? So it, it when it said one cried to another and said that there would be an altar boy who'd say, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts," and then another altar boy would sing back, "The whole earth of it is full of His glory." Right? So it'd be kind of um, imitating the scene here in Isaiah six. So um, it's kind of creative worship, right? So um, which it's probably telling that Lutherans did not pick up Luther's mass. Uh, Luther, uh, the the service that Luther designed, the Lutherans ended up not using. <laughs> it's probably too creative. He <laughs> did too many weird things. But um, anyway, I find that funny. Um, but it 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 is kind of a, a interesting thing that we have this scene of angels crying out to one another, and it's very reminiscent as well, or I should say, prophetic, not reminiscent of what's going to happen when uh, Jesus is born, right? The one angel comes out and proclaims glory to God in the highest and earth for good will to men. Um, and the, and the angels join in the song and the, everyone joins in the, in the praise. Right. All right. So, uh, then, so this is, yeah, the, just this incredible glorious scene in, this is probably one of the most glorious scenes, I should say, in I think in the whole Bible, as far as an image of God's glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. 
And so Isaiah is experiencing all of this, right? The temple is shaking. The angels are singing to one another. The train of God's robe is filling the temple. His glory is there. He sees the Lord in some sort of mystical way, right? High and lifted up on the throne. And the house is filled with smoke, right? And um, I think it's fair to say this is the smoke of, probably the smoke of incense, right? That's what would have been burning in the temple, Um was was incense and um that's why there would have been a burning coal there as well which we'll get to in a minute so uh incense is a very biblical thing um incense is always funny to me because it's it's known as this very very high church thing but there's a lot of things that are high church that aren't really like in the bible per se but incense is actually in the bible but it's like the most high church thing that you could possibly do, right? But it's actually in the Bible. So um, anyway, um, someone asked me if we could use incense sometime a while back. I don't remember who it was. Anyway. Um, yeah, I think it was Marsha. That's right. Um, where's Marsha? All right. We should ask We should ask her about this. Um Anyway, so there's incense burning. The house is filled with smoke. And Isaiah recognizes right away, right? And this is, I think, very natural, his sin, right? That he is, just being in the presence of God is a judgment, right? It's like um, if, if a kid is doing something that they're not supposed to be doing, and a parent walks in on them. The parent doesn't have to say anything, right? They don't have to. Ju- they don't have to. There's no, like, oh, let me consider this in a judicial way, and we'll consider all the evidence and see, you know, if you're in the right or in the wrong, right? It's there's a judgment, right? In the presence of the father, there is a judgment, and. That's what happens, right? He's in the presence of God. There's a judgment. And he knows that he doesn't live up to this, right? He knows he does not live up to, to the glory of God. So he says, woe to me, for I'm a man undone. There's Marsha. Marsha, were we talking about incense a while back? Yes. Sandal, you said sandalwood. I was thinking frankincense and myrrh. Yeah, that's, yeah. No, I like frankincense and myrrh. Yeah. We're talking about in Isaiah 6 that there's the house is filled with incense, right? Yeah. The temple of the Lord. Yeah, I like so. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think we do frankincense though. Because that's that's it's Bible, you know. It's not Bible, so. Sandalwood I don't think is in the Bible. But. Ah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Um so woe is me for it, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So notice he, um, we've talked about this a bunch, but when in the in the kingdom, the whole kingdom gets judged, right? Just because one person is a righteous person and another person is a wicked person, um, part of what matters is the kingdom as a whole, right? And so he recognizes that and says, not only am I a man of unclean lips, but I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Right? For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right? So he feels as if by seeing the glory of God, by being in the presence of the glory of God, right, he is going to die. Right? Woe is me. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I don't even I'm not even sure he's saying he's like a wicked person, right? He probably has faith. He's a righteous person. God's calling him to be a prophet. Um, but even so, he still recognizes his sinfulness, right? And same is true for us, right? Um, I don't think anyone in this room is not a Christian, right? But we should still repent of our sin. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. 
Now, it's interesting the focus on lips, right? I, he had said, I'm a man of unclean lips, dwelling with the people of unclean lips. And Seraphim uh, takes the coal and touches his lips, right? And um, it's very similar to like what James talks about, right? James, when, when James talks about sin, one of the images he uses is about the mouth, right? That one of the hardest things to control as sinners is our mouths, right? And mouths uh, are, well, actually, let's just look at what James says. He uses a couple different uh, images there to, to talk about. The power of the tongue, the untamable tongue. Um, so this is chapter three of James, my brethren, and this is uh, one of the reasons that the pastoral office is limited. James says, right to certain people. Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. Indeed, we put bits into horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body. Look also at ships. Although they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder, wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, I'll, I'll leave it there, um, that um, our tongue, he says, our mouth, the, the way that we use our mouth, the way that we speak, the way that we lie, the way that we gossip, um, our, the, the way that we uh, justify ourselves, our mouth is able to, is like a little fire in a forest, right? It's able to set our whole body on fire, right? Um, or our, it's like a, a ship with a rudder, right? That it, it can steer our entire direction um, or a bit in the mouth of a horse. So, um, it's it's interesting there that that Isaiah connects sin with with the lips, okay. Um, and so the angel flies with a with a live coal, a burning coal, and from the altar and touches his mouth with it, right? And uh, this is a common image I think in the Bible and in in uh, in uh, Christianity that God. This is the and in the prophets, especially of the purifying fire of God, right? That God is able to use fire, right? Fire is a powerful tool. Um, and this is also, by the way, the Holy Spirit, right, is is pictured as tongues of fire, right? So we get a mouth and a fire there. And um, the, the purifying fire of God is a precise fire, right? It's like a torch. And it's able to burn away... Um, if you think about what a purifying fire was in the ancient world, it was used to burn away dross from precious metals, right? So if you're mining silver, you're mining gold, and there's all the mud and the dross that's like caked onto it, right? You'd use fire to burn that away because it would burn away everything but the the precious metal, right? And um, so I love that stanza and how firm a foundation. We sang that last week. Right, um, that uh, through fiery trials, God does not want to uh, destroy us, but He wants to um, to burn away our dross and to uh, refine our gold. Right? Um, how how's that? Yeah, your dross to consume and your gold to refine. Thank you. That's a great, great stanza. That's how firm a foundation. Um, so that's what's going on here is that the fire is purging the sin away, right? But it's 
leaving Isaiah there intact. And so then Isaiah, and then the Lord calls, and this is the, the first time the voice of the Lord speaks, and he says, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Right, which of course, in this situation, there's only one answer, right? <laughs> Isaiah knows it's him, right? It's like, uh, yeah, just imagine being Isaiah. Isaiah, you're, you're alone in the temple with uh, the angels and the glory of God, and God asks you this question, you know? It's like, uh, anyone else back there? Jeremiah, you, were you back there? Like, no, okay, I guess it's me. No, he's, uh, he realizes it right away, right? So he says, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. And that's, um, it's interesting, that's how, I said I wasn't going to spend all 25, 25 minutes. Yeah, uh, 25 minutes on this passage. But um, this is how a lot of pastors talk about their call into the ministry, is that there wasn't really any other choice, right? They, they got to a point in their life, now this wasn't actually really the case for me because um, I went in from undergrad, but uh, in the, right in the seminary, and I didn't try and do anything else. But the second career guys always talk this way, that they tried to do other stuff for a long time, and then they got to a point where they knew they wouldn't be happy doing anything else. And uh, or they, they couldn't really avoid it, and so they um, had to enter into the ministry. Right. It is true to me and for, for me and to an extent that I don't think I could do anything else at this point. Right. Um, there's the pastor up at Christ the King, Memphis, Pastor Nugent Bauer. Um, so whenever I talk to him, he always he, he says this. I've heard him say this multiple times. It's a good line. He says, look, he's talking to me. He says, you know how we are. Me and you aren't anything special, but we're not good for anything else but being LCMS pastors. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's humbling, but it's true, right? So I, I like that. That's an encouragement to me. All right. Um, oh, I want to talk about the rest of this chapter, too. And this is very interesting. What does the Lord tell Isaiah to go Tell the people. You would think, right, if you didn't read the rest of the chapter, you would think the Lord would probably tell Isaiah, oh, go get them to repent and to turn back to me, you know, so on and so forth. That's not what he says. He says, make the heart of this people dull. Go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Right. This is Jesus says this all the time. Those who have ears, let them hear. Right. In other words, those who have faith, they'll understand what I'm saying. But the Lord tells Isaiah, go and tell the people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. In other words, keep on being unfaithful. Right. Make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. The Lord is saying here that he is hardening the heart of these people, right? They have rejected him and rejected him and rejected them. It is time for them to be punished, right? And part of Isaiah's job is to continue uh, to preach this heavy law to them that they would actually get to the point of receiving their punishment, um, which is a harsh, harsh saying. Um, we'll get to the gospel in a moment here, but the, this is heavy law. Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's like a part of the passage of the Bible where it says heaping coals on their heads. Right. And the people are, are like, you know, fighting back. They're right. Not, they're not taking it to heart. Right. Yeah. It's what happens with uh, Pharaoh, right? I mean, God starts off sending him plagues and... He has opportunity to repent, but the more he keeps rejecting God, the more God hardens his heart, and eventually it's hard to the point where he can't repent anymore, right? Hardening is a punishment for ongoing sin, and uh, that's part of the Bible. <laughs> so 
Um, anyway, Isaiah answers, right? And this is kind of interesting, right? Because Isaiah's just experienced the glory of God and he he's, uh, he's pretty courageous here to say uh, what he says. He says, Lord, how long, right? How long do I have to prophesy like this, right? And they, uh, the Lord answers, um, basically until Judah's destroyed, right? Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. Um, and the Lord has removed men far away, which we know that's what's going to happen in the Babylonian captivity. But, but, verse 13, a tenth will be in it, right? So a little bit's going to remain and return to be for consuming, right? This is the return to captivity as a terebinth tree or as an oak whose stump remains when it is cut down, right? So we have a stump that's going to remain in Judah. And then he says, this is a messianic prophecy, the last line of verse 13, so the holy seed, who's the holy seed? The Messiah, right? This is the seed of the woman in Genesis 3, the seed we've been waiting on, the whole Old Testament, shall be its stump, right? And, and of course, um, Isaiah will later prophesy about the stump of Jesse, right? Which is going to be where Jesus comes from. So uh, we have that, that after this destruction that Isaiah is going to prophesy, there's going to be a little bit that remains in Jerusalem that's going to be the stump, the seed of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. All right. Um, I knew that was going to happen. We still have a lot of key passages to go through, but that's fine. All right. So we covered Isaiah 6. That's good. All right. Let's, uh, let's leave it at that. And uh, any final questions or comments? Yeah, Steve. The uh, angels, they had these... Six wings, I guess, but they must have had some hands, or they had hands on the end of the wings. Right. And they didn't use potholes, you know. They did not use well, not that we know of. That's right. It wasn't mentioned. He used tongs, right? There so. You go. They yeah. Well, it's that it says he took. They used tongs, right? Well, it did say tongs. Yeah, it says tongs. So, all right. <laughs> um, but I mean, maybe the tongs were hot. I don't know. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the prophet Isaiah who brings us your holy word today, and we pray that it would enter our hearts and take root in us, that we would learn more about you and your son through it. We pray that you would bless our worship today together as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth. Uh, Bless the preaching of your word that it may edify those who hear it. We pray this through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.